Welcome back to Switchcast. Live as usual. Thank you for joining us. Happy that you're here tonight. Uh, I am your host, Doug Tabbitt, founder of Switch Cars and 2X Cannonball Run record holder with the venerable Arnie Toman. Uh, appreciate you being here with us tonight. We're going to talk about some automotive news, take your questions, but mostly talk about driving techniques, advanced driving techniques, how to become a better driver. Uh, I was at the Mid-Ohio Performance Driving School yesterday. Uh, I was not actually there to learn, but uh, to observe, and uh, a bunch of my friends were there to become better drivers. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's uh, one of my favorite topics. I enjoy driving. I enjoy uh, honing that skill, uh, not only for safety's sake, but just as uh, a sense of being able to to be a better driver as uh, something I enjoy. I enjoy being good at things. So anyway, uh, I do not have a guest tonight. We had a very special guest lined up. He was unable to make it due to feeling under the weather which is rare for him. I'm not going to say who it is until the end of the show because, of course, I have to keep you here the whole time. But uh, he is going to be back next week. Well, not back. He's going to be here next week, and I'm very, very excited. It's somebody that uh, a lot of people have asked to be on the show and have uh, been asking for, so it's it's going to be a really, really good episode, uh, and uh, we're, we're all excited. But I'll tell you at the end. Um, the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about was just a, a little bit of a season one recap. So, uh, I started this podcast in October. The first episode was October 13th and, uh, started it with my producer, Ethan Huffnagel, which, who was a somewhat fresh marketing school graduate. And it was a little bit and has been a little bit of a learning experience for both of us. And um, I said, we're going to do this for a year. No matter how bad it gets, we're going to stick with it for a year because it's easy to give up on stuff uh, early when it doesn't seem to be working. And we'll reevaluate after a year and see how things go. And I was committed to a live format, uh, maybe because I was pissed off at the whole pandemic situation where everything went to zoom and everything was virtual and you can't even watch the news anymore and they're sitting either either sitting 20 feet apart or they're you know calling in and <laughs> it's not even it's not even live you got split screens and you know technology is just not the same even though you know I'm coming to you via technology but uh, I like having somebody here with me that I can uh, interact with and I think people enjoy that as well so that was part of the commitment uh, and we uh, almost went back in time a little bit because I was trying to emulate more of a radio show with live call-in and live questions because our goal is not to just throw information at you but to interact and to try to help you uh, become more informed as a car buyer, as a car seller, and a car owner, and enjoy your ownership experience more. So we committed to that format. And uh, about 20 episodes in, we said, huh, maybe we should uh, break it up into seasons. And we said, well, what does season two look like? And, and we decided that we're coming to the end of season one. We picked an arbitrary number of episodes, which is about 30, and a very scientific study we did on that. 
And season one has been a little bit of everything. And it's been, like I said, a learning experience. Uh, We've experienced consistent growth and we're very, very thankful for that. That wouldn't happen without you guys. And uh, season two, we're going to deviate from the plan a little bit. Because in the first season, I, I learned something very important that Cleveland is not a destination for pretty much anybody. So convincing uh, automotive influencers or experts to come to Cleveland on a Wednesday night, especially in the middle of winter, was extremely difficult. And uh, I certainly have a good pool of people locally from which to pull. Um, But in seeking to expand the show and get some uh, more interesting guests from all walks of life on, we decided to take it on the road. So season two is going to be a mix of live and pre-recorded episodes, but we have some really, really interesting destinations and guests lined up. And if there's somebody you want to see on the show, uh, you know, shoot me a message, let me know, post it in the, the comments where you're watching, uh, shoot me a message on Instagram, and we'll do our best. Uh, I have some people in mind and some destinations already. We're, we're lining up the schedule now. We're going to start traveling end of May and kick off uh, season two beginning of June. So we'll take a little bit of a hiatus uh, in, uh, in early May. No, wait, this is early May. Is this May? This is May. Okay, never mind. No, we're going to finish up season one. We have, uh, I think, three more episodes after this with, with some great guests, and that'll wrap up season one, and then we'll go on the road in season two. So if uh, if you have a suggestion for a guest, if you think you're awesome and you want to be on the show, uh, send your resume and $1,000 via PayPal to switchcarsbilling at gmail.com. Right. Um Although um, you've probably noticed we've had a lot of cannonballers on the first episode. That's uh, probably no surprise to anybody, but I said a lot of people don't like coming to Cleveland as a destination, but cannonballers are awesome because they will drive anywhere, anytime for anything. Well, not for anything, but for free beer and a tiny bit of internet notoriety, they'll do it. So uh, that's all I had to offer them. And they came from all around the country. All 55 people that care about it. uh, All 55. (laughs) Right. Open for 56. Yeah, right. Um, Yeah, so we have have the C2C to Seers. Um, including Mark Spence. Mark Spence didn't have to come far, but we have them coming on in a couple weeks. We had Steve Brown come from Illinois. We had, um, gosh darn it, my brain is is hurting already. Um, who was on last week? <laughs> Scott. Scott Bauer. I'm sorry, Scott. We had Scott Bauer come all the way from Texas. We had the Boston Brawlers come out. Um, my goodness. My, my dad is even here from Maine tonight just for this episode. Not really. But uh, no, he, he is here watching and uh, happy to have him here. So, um, But yeah, the, the cannonballers will come from all over, but everybody else seems scared of driving. So uh, we're excited for season two and uh, uh, to, to just see how this, this goes. So that'll at the end of season two will be a year. And uh, I think we're going to keep going with this based on the numbers and the response so far. But we're certainly uh, open to hear your feedback and, of course, uh, your, your feedback in the form of, of Benjamin's, too, if you'd like to sponsor the show. Help us out with those travels. So, uh, All right. So if you'd like to join us and chat about uh, 
driving or about cars, really anything. I'll take any sort of question, but we're going to focus on on performance driving and, and improving your driving skills tonight. The call-in number is 216-294-4124. Ethan is standing by ready to screen your calls. Good luck getting through him. Uh, we typically have about 300 callers a night, but only one or two actually get through. And uh, you can also post your questions or comments in the flow of wherever you're watching live. And thanks to BoxCast for the incredible live stream as well. So um, a couple things I wanted to talk about just in automotive news. Um, We've brought up Carvana a number of times so far. And I don't want to say I called it because I didn't, but I certainly called their downfall or predicted their downfall a month or so ago because they were taking on so much debt. They've been going 10 years with no profit, albeit billions of dollars in revenue, and just seem to be making some really odd decisions about how they run their business. If you can call it a business, because a business that doesn't make money is a hobby, so it's really a hobby with some really rich people with three-letter titles. But anyway, uh. I don't know that I can necessarily take credit for this because obviously there's other large news outlets covering the same things, but I'm going to take credit anyway because since I called out Carvana on SwitchCast, their stock is down more than 50%. Darn right. I cost Carvana half of their net worth. Actually, I didn't because if they come after me legally, then then I had nothing to do with it. But yes, anyway, so that's just that we're having some influence out there, I think. Um, now the, the, let's see, the overall car market has been declining a little bit, but, uh, I think for the last four months, but the black book, uh, source, uh, as of the end of April says that the prices are rebounding just a wee bit says the overall market increased for the first time since the week before Christmas in 2021. So it's been essentially four months straight decline. Compact cars again led the increases this past week and conversion rates continue to improve as buyers brace for what they expect will be a continuation of supply struggles. So the supply chain is is a continuing issue uh, for automotive manufacturers. Now, I think they're also playing that to their advantage because they have found that it's a really good play to be uh, having essentially on-demand inventory. It's the old Dell business model. So I think they are playing that to their advantage definitely because now it's fixed pricing. Now they don't have to floor plan their dealers. There's all sorts of advantages to not having hundreds of millions of dollars of cars sitting on the lots unsold. However, the supply chain issues are real and that's impacting the used car prices on an ongoing basis, even with interest rates increasing. But let's not be too quick to jump to conclusions because the numbers are incredibly small. So this week, the used car pricing increased 0.38%. Truck and SUV segments declined a measly 0.02%, maybe because of gas prices. But again, that's such a small number, it's barely moving the needle. So the overall market is up basically a tenth of 1%. Uh, The 2017 to 19 average was 
0% over the same period. So whatever, slight increase uh, that's uh, curbing the decline of, of the last four months. Now, another car that I've talked about quite a bit is this 2018 mint green gt3 now this car was a subject of of many a story with a crazed uh longshoreman who was uh jailed for one of his outbursts uh owning this car and abandoning it at a shop who was trying to do a liberty walk wide body conversion and then having a repoed by porsche so then that car went to auction went to the east coast was quote unquote restored but not very well went through Mannheim auction the condition report at the time was a 3.7 out of 5 which is incredibly low for a high-end low mileage late model car that's like maybe a 150,000 mile Toyota Corolla would have a 3.7 CR McLaren Charlotte bought it we called it out we called them out the car was removed from their site but still there they then proceeded to put it up on Mannheim, the wholesale dealer-to-dealer marketplace on uh, OVE, so you could essentially go on and buy it now. Now, I tried to make an offer on the car because a certain gentleman we all know from a YouTube channel who loves story cars for cheap wanted to buy the car, but their minimum offer was 173 grand. I think they had paid 170 at auction, which is definitely wholesale for a regular GT3 manual, especially in paint to sample, but not one with those kind of stories. So they had gotten the car re-inspected and they had gotten an inspector to give it a 4.7 out of 5 condition rating, which is what it should be if the car is perfect. Now it was disclosed that it had frame damage because it had to be disclosed because prior auctions had disclosed it. So that brand essentially never leaves the auction because it's on auto check as structural damage, that's going to follow it. But it said when prior paintwork was disclosed, it said no. So they got an inspector that was either blind or on the take to give it a 4.7 CR and say the car had no prior paintwork. I don't know how a car can have structural damage and no prior paintwork, but whatever. We all know the story on that car. So the largest wholesaler in the country, a company called Give Me The VIN, bought it last week. And it popped up that it was going to their Highline sale in Dallas. It was supposed to sell today at auction. Their condition report, so the first one was a 3.7, then it was a 4.7. Their condition report was a whopping 2.4. That is less than 50% for a 4,000-mile GT3. And that inspector knew what he was doing because he actually called out all the prior paintwork. He pulled up the door seals and took pictures of it. It was bad. It was like the thing was friggin' brush-touched. Like somebody bought, you know, green Rust-Oleum and, and, and stuck their paintbrush in it, you know. So uh, there's allegations that, whoever did the 4.7 CR for McLaren Charlotte was paid to do so because everybody that's seen that car has called out the damage very obviously in the poor paintwork. So you kind of would have to be blind to not see it. So anyway, it was going to sell at auction today. I was all ready to bid on it. And then it was pulled yesterday for recon. So this shady story of this car continues um, we don't know what the next chapter is, but we'll keep updating you. Um, I think we're still going to try to buy it for really, really cheap if we can get it right. But anyway, so 
uh, yeah, there's there's lots of shadiness in this car business. You gotta you gotta watch your back. So we'll we'll see what's gonna happen with that car. Celebrity Machines is a proud sponsor of Switchcast. Celebrity Machines offers more than 250 different screen-accurate license plates as they appeared in movies and TV shows like Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, The Office, The Fast and the Furious, Breaking Bad, and so many more. Celebrity Machines also makes our Switch Cars dealer insert plates as well as our commemorative 2539 plates from the fastest cannonball run ever. Visit CelebrityMachines.com for more info and use promo code SWITCHCAST to save a whopping 25.39% at checkout. And Travis, the owner of Celebrity Machines, is actually going to be in town this weekend for Radwood because he's quite the rad car collector. So I'm excited to to see him. And I think he brought his Geo Tracker, uh, Suzuki Tracker. Who makes the tracker? Geo Tracker. It is Geo Tracker. Okay. So he brought his geo tracker up. Uh, Bailey Walton is here from Texas, just for Radwood, and uh, yeah, we're, it's it's going to be a good show. Oh, Bailey, he's walking this way. Bailey's going to tell us a little bit about Radwood. Yeah, he's 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 Mister Radwood. Hello. You should all come to Radwood. <laughs> the last time Bailey was on, he was leaving us, moving to Texas. Did you go to Radwood, Austin, while you were down there? I actually did not. You Okay, so you didn't go to Radwood in Texas while you were in Texas, but you I'll came all the way to Ohio. Ohio for, yeah, because that makes sense. That's just, you know, things you do. So what is Radwood? It is a celebration of everything 80s and 90s. It is a great time. Most of it's centered around the 80s, 90s cars. But there's quite a few people who come to, you know, celebrate the culture around it, the music around it. Um, everyone dresses up. It's it's just so much fun. Yeah. Yes, it's something it is. you have to experience. It is. Yeah. It's a great excuse to go to a thrift store and buy clothes. True. I think a lot of people just go online and buy, like, fancy stuff from vintage stores. But I, I think the funniest part about that show is the fact that like half of the people there have no idea. Like they never wore sweatpants or anything neon colored or baggy for that matter. They weren't even conceived in the red era. Right. Like, right. They, they have brown. the hipster hard part <laughs> and like oiled beards. But like the, 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 I think the funniest thing is the people that buy like the solo cup, outfits and i'm like nobody actually wore those or the polaroid <laughs> shirt everyone wears that stupid polaroid shirt you can buy spencer's right right so anyway so i uh yeah most of my stuff is from my closet but um yeah we're looking forward to it my dad's laughing because he actually was a rock star in that era so he knows rad but <laughs> are you gonna go or are you still gonna be in town oh sweet so maybe my dad will go i bet you got a car you can drive he has a proper rad facial hair he has a mustache get get rid of the oiled manicured beards that is not rad okay people clean shaven or mustache so yeah, so we're excited for that. I'm taking uh Callaway C16 and a Panos Roadster. And uh yeah, we're looking forward to meeting people and just celebrating uh yesteryear when the cars were worse, but they seem better now because they're rare and collectible. 
Um, all right. Getting into driving. Uh, our topic tonight is how to drive better, how to become a better driver, why you might suck at driving, or really why everybody else sucks at driving. I actually, I wrote this book. I was in a antiques and bookstore store up in Maine. It's actually a, a chicken barn. It's three floors of books and antiques. It's wildly famous. But there was a book in there from the 60s about driving techniques and, and safe driving from that era. It was really, really good. And I probably would have bought it if it was a dollar, but it was like $8. I'm like, I can't spend that for something used. I'm just going to throw on the shelf. But in it, it had a statistic that basically said something to the effect of 85% of drivers think that they are better than average. I'm like, that has not changed in the least bit. And it is hilarious that the majority of drivers think they are better than everybody else. And that's the fundamental problem with driving is everybody thinks that they're good. They don't know what they don't know. And insurance companies feed into that because they tell people that slow is safe. You know, if you get a speeding ticket, your insurance rates go up and police and the insurance Institute for Highway Safety feed into that because their studies, which are paid for by insurance companies who profit off of give, raising people's rates when they get speeding tickets, their studies show that speeders are more dangerous and speeding contributes to the majority of accidents, yada, yada, yada. And it's a load of crap because the non-biased studies show that that is not true. It's just not true. Uh, so just because you drive slow doesn't mean you're safe. Uh, ben Collins, who was uh, one of the original Stigs, in his autobiography wrote, exceeding the speed limit contributes, and this is not his information, he didn't make up these stats, he, he researched this, exceeding the speed limit contributes to less than 14% of fatal accidents, but driver error is a significant factor in more than 65%. Poor turns, dodgy maneuvers, and failing to negotiate slippery roads contribute to four times more road deaths than mobile phones. Now, I want to stop there because this was written probably 10 or 15 years ago when mobile phones were not highly in use and texting certainly wasn't a thing. So I guarantee that that statistic has changed because every time I'm almost run off the road, it's by somebody on their phone. So coming back to it, losing control of the car is the primary cause of driving fatalities and failing to look properly causes the most accidents. In the past, insurance companies only concerned themselves with information you can find on the electoral roll. Recently, they started looking into driver telemetry to see if there's a link between how you drive and accident probability. There was. Drivers who jerk the steering or stomp the brakes and throttle like they're putting out a fire are high risk. Smooth drivers are less likely to crash because driving smoothly requires you to control the machine properly and look farther ahead. Absolutely. And that uh, a lot of insurance companies have that app now, the OBD2 thing you can plug into your car that, that measures your telemetry as you go in order to get insurance discounts. I've always wanted to put that in my car and 
see see if I like broke the thing because well I, like I am a smooth driver but I'm also like I drive fast cars and I get on the throttle so I'm like I, I wonder if they just have a g limit if it matters how smoothly you get to threshold braking or how smoothly you do the slide like the g-forces are there no matter what so i don't know if it's it's like the change in forces or the g-forces overall but i've always wanted to plug that in and, and send it to my insurance company and, and see the underwriter scratch their head but it's uh, actually on my f-250 you were driving oh it is yeah <laughs> well that thing doesn't go or stop fast enough to mess anything up that's or, why it's on there oh we should put it on a uh well, no, we should put it in for a cannonball. Now, a cannonball is super, like, it's super uneventful and smooth, actually. We should put it on for a track day. Plug it in. Uh, it should plug it in. I'm going down to Taylor Hall's Drift University in a few months. I should get that and plug it in and send it to my insurance company and see what they say. We're, we're going to try that. We're going to try that. All right. So, exceeding the speed limit, less than 14% of fatal accidents. Driver error is a significant factor in more than 65%. And I recently went through a, a correctional driving school, we'll say. It was to get out of a points on a ticket. And I had to take this stupid online class. And most of it was absolute hogwash. I kept finding the errors. And um, one of the charts that was trying to highlight how dangerous speeding is said that and it's all in phraseology. Is it the old uh, the old saying that uh, statistics don't lie, but liars use statistics? And so they had these pie graphs, and they're talking about speeding and how it contributes to so many accidents and deaths. And it said more than a quarter of deaths are caused by accidents related to speeding. I was like, wait, more than a quarter? That's a small minority. That's less than a third. That's way less than half. So it's all about how you phrase it. <clears throat> so it's actually a small minority, but they're trying to spin it like, oh, speeding is super dangerous. But they didn't talk about the other 76%. Well, what causes the other 76%? And a friend of mine um, who's a, a San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputy was interviewed by Road and Track about cannonballers, especially during the COVID lockdown. And the whole concept of, of speeding and cannonballing and whether or not it was safe. And he said, you know, the, the statistics that are given that lead to the numbers that say this, this accident was speed related. He said almost every accident is speed related because it's not just speeding that feeds into that statistic. It's driving too fast for conditions, which could be anything. Uh, you spin out in the snow going 30 miles an hour in a 60, they'll give you a friggin' driving too fast for conditions ticket. That means speeding was a factor. Speed was a factor. Uh, he said if, if you rear end somebody who's at a stoplight, you could have been going 10 miles an hour under the speed limit. They'll give you a moving violation that's related to speed. Speed was a factor in that accident. So it's highly skewed. So even the minority, the 26% that say, well, speeding is related is skewed because that's only a part of the cause. Uh, so it, again, it goes back to driver error, lack of driver training. Uh, car accidents are the number one cause of death for teens in the U.S. Number one cause. And it's probably because they're 
not trained well, and they're inexperienced. In Ohio, um, let's see, you don't have to parallel park. The only thing you have to do is go on a little road test and then back through a few cones. And the majority of training that I see is kids backing through cones. Um, They don't learn how to recover skids. They don't learn any sort of accident avoidance. They don't learn any techniques. Um, In Germany, compared to the U.S., so they have 37 hours of mandatory driver training. In the U.S., uh, it depends on the state. I think Maryland has the highest, which is like six hours of of driver training with a driving instructor. Uh, But, you know, your driving instructors are basically the, the people that got fired from Dunkin' Donuts. And they're like, well, I can go sit passenger seat in a car and, you know, record hours. I... I stereotype my driving instructors in high school were awesome. They were professional photographers and rally navigators, but you know, that's because Maine's better than everywhere else. But I kid, I kid, I digress anyway. Um, yeah. So, but the majority of the time is spent with your parents and your parents probably have as many bad driving habits as you do. So they're just teaching you bad habits or just trying not to die. But in Germany, you have to spend 37 hours in car with a certified driving instructor. They take it very, very seriously. And if you're under 18, you cannot drive without somebody in the car. So they're obviously their teen driving statistics. I'm sorry, their teen fatality statistics are very, very low. And to even obtain a driver's license as an adult or anybody in Germany, it is an incredibly arduous process. Multiple theoretical tests, which are very, very difficult. You have to understand all the nuances of driving law and why those laws exist. The per capita or essentially per driver uh, rate of death between the US and Germany, Germany, which has a very high standard in order to obtain a driver's license, US, which has pretty much friggin' nothing. If you have a heartbeat, I think we consider it like a right to have a driver's license, not even a privilege. Um, approximately four to one America to Germany in terms of accident deaths per number of drivers. Four to one. So you're four times more likely to die in the U.S. from a car crash than you are in Germany. And it's because of training and experience and therefore skill. Uh, Car crashes are typically the number one cause of line of duty deaths for police officers as well. Now, in the last year, that was skewed greatly by COVID. And actually, firearms surpassed, uh, I'm sorry, firearm deaths surpassed driving deaths by like three. So that was the first time that I know that driving deaths were not number one, but it was very, very close. But the training disparity is massive. So just about every cop I know is constantly training with firearms. They're testing their firearms, they're training, they're doing specialized tactical training. They're posting videos of them going out on the course training all the time. But hardly any, well, very few that I know have ever had to engage with anyone with their firearm in the line of duty. 
they hardly ever pull their gun, let alone fire it. So they're spending all this time training for something that they're probably never going to use, but they sit in their car 90% of their shift and they go through a little bit of training at police academy and that's it. Maybe some state troopers will do some advanced training with pits or some continuing education, but most local departments and sheriff's departments are doing no training. They train all the time with firearms, but they never train with cars. They think that because they drive their cars all the time that they're they're fine. They know what they're doing. But if you watch YouTube police chase videos as compulsively as I do, you'll see that cops are some of the worst friggin' drivers out there. And especially when you put adrenaline into the mix and the thrill of the chase, man, they get the blinders on and just, it's hilarious how bad the driving is. I mean, the pit maneuvers, the cornering, I mean, it's, it's just so bad. It's so bad. Um, so we know there's a problem, right? The statistics tell us that people can't friggin' drive. And if you go on the highway and you think you're a good driver, even though you're probably one of the ones that isn't, you can tell that everybody else is a bad driver also. So what do we do about it? What's the fix? Well, there's the utopian fix in my eyes, which is force everybody who's getting their driver's license to go through a mandatory three to five day intensive fundamentals course where you learn the principles of oversteer, understeer, car control, accident avoidance, suspension, unloading and loading, threshold breaking, grip, et cetera, et cetera. That's never going to happen unless I'm dictator. Uh, continuing education would also be awesome as well. To renew your license, you should have to take an updated class to learn you know, what's different in cars, what's different in rules of driving. Uh, you know, you see these old people all the time that don't know how to use a a third, you know, the, the middle turn lane and they try to turn from the right lane. You see pretty much everybody in Ohio who can't use a friggin' rotary or a roundabout as you call them out here. Um, because, and you know, they all post on the local city Facebook groups, how awful the roundabout is and how stupid it is. And, and it's not, it's a, it's a great traffic, uh, control device, but people just can't friggin' drive. They don't know what yield means. Anyway, so a lot of people think the answer, at least from a car enthusiast perspective, is to go to the track. Uh, somebody had posted in the discussion on Instagram that um, they went to their, their PCA instructor school, and that was great, and everybody should do that. And, and I agree, going to uh, what they call HPDEs, a high-performance driving event, is a good thing. It gives you practice. It gives you experience. But it lacks one major thing, is if you're a car guy and you go to the track a lot, and even if you do it with a right seat instructor, you do it in your car, you could be there every weekend, it doesn't teach you the fundamentals that you need. It doesn't really make you a better driver. It might make you faster around the track, but it doesn't make you a better driver. And here's why. On a track day, number one, you don't learn the fundamentals of oversteer and understeer and car control. You learn how to drive around the track slightly faster. You start at three tenths, four tenths, five tenths, six tenths, seven, eight, nine tenths. And the instructor prays to God that you never get beyond nine tenths because if you do, he's probably going to die. 
I don't say that lightly. A lot of instructors have died in the right seat of a car with somebody who had an ego and not enough experience. And that's why I don't instruct at track days. But you never learn the difference between nine tenths and 10 tenths. And the only way to understand the difference is to go 11 tenths. I'm not going to use a line from Spinal Tap, but all of you are knowing exactly what I'm thinking. Mark is shaking his head. No, have you ever never seen this is Spinal Tap? Nope. These amps go to 11. Oh my gosh. Dad, you've seen that, right? No. <laughs> oh my gosh. Dan Doucette, you've seen This Is Spinal Tap? Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fine. Man, tough audience here tonight. Okay. So the only way to understand how you're approaching 10, which is the limit, is to go beyond it and then back it off and say, wait a minute, what does it feel like to get there? And you're never going to experience that at the track. Well, if you do, it's going to be really expensive because you're going to go to 11 and that 11 is going to be backing your car into the friggin' wall. And then you got to go out and buy a new car and then try it again. That's not the way to learn. So I've been to track with a lot of guys. I've even been out with guys who had SCCA licenses who knew how to drive really, really well at 9.8 tenths. But sitting in the right with them, I could tell that they had no idea that they were at 9.8 and I could feel the car getting close to 10 and knew that they didn't know because I comment, I was riding with a, a guy in a, a Scuderia one time and he had traction control on and we went around a corner and I started to feel the rear end slip and I kept starting to feel the rear end slip and it was like a second past when I would have already been counter steering and maybe laying into the throttle to, to increase the fun factor of the slide, but whatever. And he hadn't moved his hands yet. And right about the time that the traction control kicked in and saved his butt, he moved his hands. And then he blamed the traction control for not letting him have any fun. And I just kind of like, my eyes got wide, and I'm like, oh, you have no clue how to drive, do you? And he had... Viper ACRs and crazy, crazy track cars and was at the track all the time and was highly regarded as a good driver. But that was because he knew eight tenths really well. He had no idea what nine and a half to 10 felt like. And that's the problem with typical performance driving experience is you don't fundamentally become a better driver. You become faster, but all you're doing is increasing the uh, the risk for wadding it all up at a much higher rate of speed. So all that said, what's the solution? It is good driving schools in somebody else's car with professional instructors in a closed, controlled environment that let you pass the limit over and over and over again until you get it. And yesterday, I was fortunate enough to ride along with not only my wife, but three other friends, Dan, Austin, and Tyler, who were regulars here to the podcast live show. And we went down to the Mid-Ohio Performance Driving School, where they got to slide cars around with pro drivers in the right seat at very slow speeds. But they learned the fundamentals. They learned 
what oversteer feels like before it's oversteer. What understeer feels like before it's understeer, because usually once it is oversteer or understeer, it's too late. Um, the one thing I learned there that I thought was really, really good was that driving is a quote unquote perishable skill. Um, I used to be, I think the, the highest level of skill I had was probably 10 years ago, 11 years ago when I lived out at Spring Mountain, I was on the skid pad all the time and I had pretty much unlimited track time. I could drift a car around a quarter at 90 miles an hour with no fear. I can't do that now. I still have the theoretical knowledge, but I haven't practiced. So that's where the continuing education is really, really important. Um, but to have that, you have to have an attitude that you're not a good driver. You're always learning. Even a pro indie driver has a driving coach. All the guys there were pro drivers. They're at, you know, they have been or are at the top of their game. They've won races. They've beat famous names, but they have driving coaches. They're always trying to learn. In contrast, I was sitting with an amateur driver at a Porsche driving event last year, and, and she has a ton of experience on track. Um, and she said that her, we were talking about crashes because I had actually just wrecked a car, but anyway. <clears throat> We're not going to talk about that. She said that her experience level was to a point that she knew she would never wreck again unless it was a mechanical failure or a fluid spill. And I'm just sitting there like, man, that is a really, really arrogant position. And it's something I've never, ever heard from a real pro driver. Those guys know that they're on the limit all the time and anything can happen and they make mistakes and they can make mistakes and they do make mistakes. Watch freaking formula one. Those guys wreck all the time. She, she was basically saying like, Oh no, I'm, I'm removed from that. I'm so good. I'm never going to wreck again. If you think that about yourself, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself because it's going to happen anyway. So all that to say the fundamentals Teaching yourself the fundamentals are, are I'm sorry, not teaching yourself, going to a school that teaches you the fundamentals are the best way to become a better driver and continuing to do it continuously, uh, practicing it after the school, going to track events if you can, but going back to the schools. I would go every year if I could to a different type of school, just to hone the craft. It's, it's fun for one, but it, you know, if, if you're not working on your reactions, if you're not training your body to react a certain way in emergency situations, you're going to do it wrong. And that's why I wrecked last year is because I was rusty on my training. I knew exactly what mistake I made, but when it happened, I only had a split second to decide what I was going to do. And as the instructors at Mid-Ohio said yesterday, your instincts are wrong. Your driving instincts are always wrong. You have to train them to do the right thing. Uh, so we had a lot of fun at the at the event. Uh, my wife did pretty well. She was a little bit overwhelmed. She she uh, she learned how to recover slides quite well and quickly, um, but the the autocross kind of got the best of her. But uh, we had a lot of fun stories. Austin, I think, won for the the most cones taken out. Um, oh, speaking of Austin, Austin's on the line here. Uh, yeah. 
I, I I did win. I think the most cones taken out. Yeah. Uh, All right, awesome. Including a tire, a tire too. You took out a tire. Oh my goodness! All right, were you were you trying to win? Did you did you think there were racing scouts at this driving school? Well, I did end up with the fastest time, so I must have been doing oh the fastest time a little bit more right than everyone else, maybe the fastest time at a at a driving school. Isn't that special? <laughs> Um, backseat of the short bus. Backseat of the short bus. <laughs> that was only because I wasn't competing. I, I could tell it was tearing you up inside. I was tearing you up inside. Uh, it was tearing me up inside that my wife didn't beat you, actually, but um, she went more off course than you did. <laughs> um, so uh, Austin went to the, the mid Ohio driving school with us yesterday and he did have the fastest time in the autocross, which won him a, a two day school, uh, which they didn't tell him beforehand. Otherwise it would have been a way more interesting competition. But, uh, uh, Austin, what was your, what was your experience before the school and what was your takeaway from the school? Uh, my experience before the school consisted of a teen defensive driving program which I'm a big proponent of, also done at Mid-Ohio, but that was 15 years ago now. Okay. What did, what did you learn in the teen school? Um, we got to do the same skid car that we did yesterday. Um, we learned uh, emergency lane change and uh, braking on a uh, wet skid pad. Nice. Nice. So three of the, the big I fundamentals. I recommend that. Yes, I highly recommend uh, it really that it shouldn't be called teen driving school because most adults don't know that they don't know how to do that. They don't know threshold braking. They rely on the ABS. They expect their car to do everything for them. Is, am I wrong? No, not at all. Yeah. So they should take the, the teen thing off it. I, I think every teen should be required to go through it. And I wish like I wish the insurance companies would figure out that it was worth their while they probably if they did the math instead of focusing on speeders they probably figure out that paying for every new driver to go through a two-day intensive driving school would save them so much in claims that it would be worth it but i guess they don't care they just want to gouge speeders but i think every parent if they care about their kids should send them to that kind of school agreed yeah uh, so what you built on that to, to go to this performance driving school, what was your big takeaway? Like what was the highlight? What was the best thing you learned at the performance driving school? Uh, the best thing I learned when I was at the school yesterday, uh, was, was really understanding the basics of cornering. Um, I had, I had done some track days on a motorcycle before, mm -hmm. but, uh, that was even a little more, uh, wild westish than uh the track day uh any other track days and cars sure and, uh there's always talking about cornering but there's never explanation so i think uh you know uh learning how to approach learning how to apex properly uh was the big the big highlight for me yesterday and i really uh, on your you know you don't know uh where 10 is until you go to 11 I think that was where the instructor really helped yesterday. There was one corner where I was just continuously breaking too early. And finally he just said, break where I was break where he was standing. And I approached him 
uh, at the full rate of speed, and he was standing about two car lengths past where I should have uh, uh, applied the brakes, and I just slid right through the corner. But uh, it was – and then he was like, okay, now you know what not to do. Just uh, walk it back from there until you get it. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah. That was helpful. That's it. That was helpful. And yeah. I counted for like three cones yesterday. Right. Right. But again, that's, you learn in a place where it's cones, not people. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. It was a fantastic experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of something else, and now I, I can't remember. My, my brain is failing. But, um, no, it, it was it was a really good school, and it was fun to, to watch you guys learn. Oh, I, I know what it was. Um, so people, you can argue with me because you're an engineer, but um, people say that, you know, what you learn in school, like calculus, whatever, it's stupid because you can never apply it in the real world. And for the most part, they're right. Calculus is, is some dumb theory that, you know, only works if you want to go to the moon. But you could potentially say the same thing about learning the apex and, and cornering techniques and things like that, the performance driving school, right? I, I, could, I could see people making that argument, but I think it's an easy argument to debunk when you consider, you know, Ohio winners, you're going to be sliding. Uh, all the time. So being able to recover a slide is important. Um, you know, taking evasive action. Um, okay. So I, the, I the, there's lots of things that transfer over. How does, how does, uh, learning the ideal cornering line, how to take a corner at the limit, how does that translate to real world? I'm trying to, I know the answer, but I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. Dun, dun, dun. I'll defer to the expert. I'll defer to the expert. No, it's, no you went through the school. What? How does it help mm. you in, in real life? Because that's part of going through the school is understanding the translation. Because otherwise, you'll just be like, ah, oh, this, is, this is going to the track, whoop-de-doo, you know, but it doesn't matter. How does that help you? Austin, I'm I'm uh, trying to come up with the answer, but I'm struggling. Oh, okay. So I, I think your instructors let you down a little bit in making that connection. All right. Well, I'll let you think about that because I don't have an answer either. I was just <laughs> posturing. No, no, I, I do have an answer. So learning how to take a corner at the limit, everything you do on a race course in terms of the driving line and cornering at the limit, threshold breaking, et cetera, all of that, even the racing line has to do with the fundamentals. And it has to do with understanding where the limits of your car are, how to find those limits. And then it goes back to the biggest fundamental, which do you remember the, the basic fundamental? What's the most important thing? I, eyes. Eyes. eyes that's right. So it's it's looking through the corner. In order to take the right racing line, you have to look through the corner. And that translates directly back to driving on the street. It's all about keeping your eyes up. If you're on the phone, if you're looking directly in front of you, if you're looking at, you know, the Ferrari next to you, whatever, it it is making you a worse driver. In order to be able to react to situations, you have to be looking as far ahead as possible and anticipating what's going on. And learning how to find the limits of your car on a racetrack 
is applicable because when you are in a difficult situation, um, even if you're approaching an exit ramp, right? All those exit ramps in California that are 25 miles an hour, you're coming off at 80 miles an hour and you see all the black marks on the concrete where people just run into them. That's because they didn't learn the racing line. They didn't learn how to take a corner at the limit and they needed it then. And probably half those people probably could have made the corner at the speed they were going, but they made a mistake once they realized they were approaching the corner wrongly and they didn't know what to do. So it, it all translates directly back. And and I think a lot of people just leave it for, well, that's that's for racers, that's for enthusiasts. I just I just drive to work. But you need all that driving to work. Yeah, I would I would uh, concur greatly with that. And you know, I think if there's one thing where the tra- where, where the, the previous motorcycle track days did help it was with the eyes because um, that was yeah. one of the things that harped on. And that's one of the things that I think I was, I was doing yesterday that I didn't have to think about doing. And I was, you know, focused on all the other stuff they were teaching me, but that one was drilled into me um, through the motorcycle track days. Yep. And due to a few excursions, I had off the track on the motorcycle <laughs> track days. Right. Right. Cause where your eyes go, your hands go, where you look, you're going to drive. Right. I have this. I have this fantastic GoPro video um, that I'll have to show you sometime. It's uh, it's it's me on a motorcycle and I'm following someone, uh, and I'm watching them and I'm not watching what I'm doing on the bike or paying attention. <laughs> and I just and I just reckon. drives. I, I just drive straight off the track. I just drive straight <laughs> off the track. It, it it looks if you're watching the video and you don't have context of what's happening, it looks ridiculous. So like, why do you drive off the track? And, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's like my buddy, John in high school who, uh, rear ended somebody because he was checking out a girl next to him. <laughs> 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 oh, we never let him live that one down. Oh. All right. Well, thanks Austin. Congrats on, on winning the, the race yesterday. Don't, don't wait for those, uh, racing, racing scouts to call you anytime soon, but, uh, I'm interested to hear your feedback after you go through the, the advanced school. So. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And I had a blast yesterday. Thanks for coming down. Yeah, for sure. It was fun. All right. See you later. See ya. Switchcast is brought to you by Boxcast. Boxcast is a live streaming company based in Cleveland, Ohio, and they serve broadcasters and viewers in more than 200 countries. Their founders launched Boxcast back in 2013 with one purpose to make people part of the experience. If you're looking to live stream your podcast, church service, car show, sporting event, wedding, or even your cannonball attempt, BoxCast is an easy, flexible, live streaming platform for organizations. BoxCast is so easy, we are broadcasting this show live with our phone. Head over to switchcars.com slash BoxCast for your free trial. All right, we are back, and we're going to go to questions now. If you'd like to call in with your question, the number is 216-294-4124, or you can post your question. Uh, And the beautifully voiced, smooth Mark, well, he's not smooth tonight. I'm Harry Mark today. He's Harry Mark today. Well, it's Mark Spence's beard. (laughs) Mark Spence's beard is going to be reading off your question. So fire away, Spence's beard. First question is from Henry Collins. Are you going to have do an episode with Matt Mormon? No. I don't even know who that is. 
He's a detailer. Oh. He's the type of person who won't buy a car, a used car, because it's not clean enough, and he won't let people sit in his passenger seat. Okay. That type of mentality stresses me out to no end. I like clean cars, but I like to drive them and enjoy them. And I don't know. I It, it would, yeah. I, I don't have anything to ask him. <laughs> Honestly. Like, he's a nice guy. It's fine. I just, like, he's called obsessive for a reason but it's 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 too it's too much for me next question is from elon musk is suspicious 43 what advice do you have for getting an allocation for special cars from porsche dealers such as a 992 gt3 or a sport classic go back in time and buy a 918 and get on the vip list next question next question is from the daniel bc how did you find that 99 con callaway c16 uh, it found me, uh, when you make enough Mike Corvette's best Corvette videos online, then, uh, serious collectors reach out to you and, uh, yeah, that, that's it. I, I'd been in conversation with the guy who owned it for probably a year about Corvette C6 RS, about some other cars. And, uh, he had a C16 that I was trying to buy and he ended up selling it to a friend of his and, uh, he offered me the C12 and. I don't know, a couple months of negotiations, it made its way up here. It's a beautiful car. Yes, it is. Um, this is also from Elon Musk is suspicious. What percentage of your net worth would you tie up in cars, including special circumstances like if you found the F50 you've been looking for? Uh, if I found the F50, I don't believe in debt, but I'd probably tie up 300% of my net worth. <laughs> <laughs> uh i i don't know it ebbs and flows based on lifestyle right now i've scaled it down uh in terms of the personal cars anyway i mean i always have a, a certain percentage tied up in the dealership because that's you know that, that's a business investment but uh personal cars have scaled way down because we're looking to upgrade in house and, you know, just trying to keep cash available for, I don't know, the impending crash or whatever. Um, so, I don't know, maybe 20% for me, which is, I think, higher than it should be for most people. But I have a, an ability to buy cars and not lose money on them that most people don't because I do it for a living all the time. So, I like, I look at cars somewhat at least the money I have tied up in them the way I tell people not to right I look at them as okay well I'm not spending this money I'm just parking this money in this car but it's a dangerous game to play if you're not a professional because usually statistically it backfires obviously we can't look at the last two years and we can't look at very very small segments of the market but usually that backfires and if you justify that to yourself or to your wife you're going to be in trouble but i allow a higher percentage of of my net worth to be in cars because i'm able to not really have them cost me money to own so because again, and somebody asked this question a little while ago, they asked to, and we will do a video on this talking about like net ownership costs versus purchase price. Because purchase price has nothing to do with how much it's going to cost you to own a car. It's all about how much it, it costs you 
over the term that you have it. So yeah, I, I look at how much it's going to cost me to own it, not how much I could, you know, how much I have tied up in it at any one moment. Uh, next question, Coach Connie, sixty-four. Can you tell us how you explain the difference between men and women when you taught race driving? Well, that's a good one. Um, men have a testosterone block that allows them not to learn anything unless they figure it out themselves. Apparently, so I, some I, I enjoyed for the most part, instructing people who had never been on a racetrack because they would listen. But I was right seat with a guy who had an SCCA racing license in a 700 horsepower GT2. And I was, you know, unlicensed, whatever. I was just a guy who lived at the racetrack. And I did some right seat with him. And in two laps, like I knew, okay, he's doing this wrong. He's doing that wrong. Like he was totally just, driving with driving with his wrong head we'll put it that way and he was all over the board and he was just manhandling the car to no end and it was a sketchy car it's a 996 gt2 with 700 horsepower i mean they're nicknamed the Widowmaker. it had old tires the suspension was set up poorly i knew all that i could feel it and i could tell that he couldn't tell and after about three laps because he wasn't listening to me I got out of the car and was just like, yeah, you're good. You're good enough to go by yourself. I mean, it was a total lie, but I'm like, I, I can't ride with you. Um, it, it's mostly that they, they don't want to take correction because they think they know everything. Um, and, and it's very, very difficult. Now, granted, he was an SCCA licensed driver and I was a 25 year old kid, but like, it didn't matter. I could tell what he was doing wrong and I was trying to help him fix it and he had no interest. Whereas I was instructing for a client's daughter and this was on like a three mile track. So there's like, I don't know, 21 turns or something like that. And I'd make a note on one turn and say, next time we come around, you did this incorrectly, change it and do this instead. And we go 20 other corners and like, this was a track, it took you a couple hours just to learn what all the corners were. There were so many next time around, she made that adjustment and improved it. And most professional driving instructors will say the same thing is that women just, they, they essentially just listen better. They take that correction better and they listen. They don't have any preconceived notions and that's why they're better to instruct. And, you know, I don't have a ton of experience instructing. I've only done a little bit, but I've found that for the most part to be true except with my wife because she's also very stubborn but no <laughs> uh next question is from gonzo prius did you reveal your um driving adventures to the instructor of the course you took no i did not no i did not uh, it, it, i didn't feel the need to because these guys had like raced indie and I don't know. It's something about Cannonball that is really not impressive to a guy that's <laughs> raced against Mario and Treddy. They're not part of the 55 people. <laughs> right. I, yeah, it's whatever. They didn't ask, so I didn't tell. It's like the military. Hey, hey. Um, <laughs> I'm going to butcher this next one. Smart Social Jizabum Slabado Narado. I. What's his question? I don't know. 
I get that you guys in U.S. just give out licenses, but Europe is not that better. You'll still. I didn't pass say Europe. It was Germany. Ninety-nine <laughs> percent of cases, but there's just a longer training cycle. My phone died. Well, fine. It, if you pass because they train you properly, then great. Uh, but uh, you know, I was referencing Germany specifically, but I'd, I'd be happy for there to be a ninety-nine percent pass rate. But right now, it's because they have low standards. Just raise the standards and raise the training. Next question is from Zane Price. What's a cost-efficient way for a college student to find this fundamental kind of training? Uh convince your parents that they have to pay for it <laughs> that i i don't know i honestly like show your parents the statistics and say hey this this is probably more important or as important than college because if i die then my college degree doesn't mean anything like i i i don't know like if if it's important to you I think it's, I mean, I asked my grandmother to send me for my birthday or for graduation, I think it was, to some driving schools. Um, now, I wanted to do it for fun. I had dreams and aspirations of being a race car driver. But um, if you convince your parents that this is a really necessary thing um, and not just your pie-in-the-sky dreams of being a race car driver... Uh, show them the statistics, then, you know, maybe they'll, they'll see that it's worthwhile. And if not, I don't know, go work your butt off and, and do it yourself. I mean, it, they're not cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than even going to a track day and paying for tires and consumables and stuff like that. And the risk of wrecking your car. I mean, if you get, I think the guy's got a black Friday special for like six or 700 bucks for the, the one day school. So, you know, it's, I, I don't know. Beg, beg, borrow, steal is the old, the old adage. The next question is from Nick Kruger. My son is turning 12 and I want to start getting him comfortable with driving. I don't trust driver's ed to teach him what all he needs to know. What do you recommend for teenage and new slash new driver training? Um, a school. I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's find Find a school that teaches the advanced uh, the advanced driver training. Uh, short of that, go to a snowy parking lot and do it yourself if you understand it. Uh, but yeah, send them to a one or two day school. I, I think that's the answer for everybody. So yeah. Um. Oh no! It. Oh no! It's. I don't know this name. Oh no! It Theo something asked. How did the Mexican Stig perform at the? <laughs> the school well i didn't perform anything i was just there for moral support so i just sat and and watched and tried to keep my mouth shut from too many smart aleck responses uh big jeff's 2017 asked have you ever seen someone with zero previous training be exceptionally gifted at driving i sure i mean everybody has natural talent but again it's like the guy said it's a perishable skill and you can have natural talent but um, you still have to develop it and, and learn, you know, you may have a good feel for it, but you have to learn and understand what you're feeling and, and hone those skills. It's not going to make you a pro race driver. 
Nick goes fast asked, uh, Brock Yates used to require racing or advanced driving experience to be considered for a cannonball. I like this question. Um, that is very true. He did. Uh, in order to get into the original cannonball, you had to send him your driving credentials, um, including minimum was a racing license or racing experience. And and the, I actually met an OG cannonballer from 79 down at Amelia Island and um, when it said, talked about driver's license, when it asked if you had a license, because he didn't spell it out in the application, the guy thought it was just a driver's license. So he had no idea. So he just said yes. So he was never asked to send in a copy of it or anything. So he got there and, uh, or no, it, it was that or... Um, asked if he had any racing experience and he was a avid street racer he street raced all the time so he's like yep all the time <laughs> so that was his experience and then he gets there and realizes he was totally unqualified and that wasn't you know he wasn't really supposed to l get let in but he did anyway so i feel like um, there's a bunch of people like that oh for sure what about mad dog wasn't he a construction worker yeah <laughs> i i don't remember but i think 79 they loosen the restrictions a little bit but uh, so Nick asks, what are your thoughts on people without formal advanced driver training or experience participating in cannonball-like events? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it is, it's highway driving for the most part, especially in the tribute events at slower cars. So um, uh, that, that's a tough one. I, I'm not the judge or jury or sanctioning body of cannonball because nobody is. I think... I think everybody driving, whether they're doing cannonball or not, should have advanced driver training experience. Uh, I definitely think if you're going to go for a record or think you have what it takes to go for a record, you darn well better be some higher level of, of driver with a lot of experience and training because you're putting yourself in situations where you potentially need those reaction times and those skills at any given moment. And it's amplified because of the speeds. So, you know, to, to just do a cannonball tribute event, whatever it's, it's highway driving. But if, if you're going to really try to do a cannonball, yeah, you need to know, you know, you should have professional training. Um, coach Connie 64 asked, does mid Ohio performance have classes for people who drive manual only or only automatic <laughs> coming from a lady who drives only manual? Uh, they do Aaron use the automatic version of the Acura ILX. Everybody else did manual, but yeah, so they, they have it for, for anybody, any level of driver. Henry Collins asked, is it better to learn how to drive on track in a fast or slow car? Um, I say slow car, uh, fast car, a lot can go wrong a lot quicker. And you can also use, uh, the capabilities of a fast car to basically overcome your mistakes. Uh, my friend Sable calls those hero cars. So like a Nissan GTR is a perfect example. It, the car is so good that a bad driver can go around the track really fast and think they're good and they're not because a car is doing it for them. So, I mean, like the, the school yesterday, everything was at very slow speed, but they took you over the limit at a slow speed. So you understood what happened and then you turn the speed up as you get more comfortable with the limit. So definitely a slow car and then progress. Um, let's see. 
Luke Ferraro asked, everyone says they are a good driver, but what actually makes a good driver? Oh. Uh, that is that is a good question. I, I think it comes down to um, what we said earlier is about the the understanding that's a perishable skill and the quest for continued learning. So I think good drivers are constantly looking to be better. They're not arriving at a point and saying, I got this. It's, it's somebody that knows what they don't got and is always trying to improve. So um, last question we'll use is uh, from the D's 69. Do you do any driving on a sim? Do you think that skills, techniques learned on a sim translate into the real world? I have my thoughts, but I would love yours. Well, I'd like to know your thoughts too. But um, I've done driving on a sim, and I really hope that those skills and techniques don't translate to the real world because the converse, if the converse is true, then I'm a terrible driver because I cannot drive in video games or sims or anything like that i am terrible at it and somebody once told me that being a good driver at those things is more about understanding how like video games work than knowing how to drive and like i've done the sims with like the the, the springs and the g simulated g forces and the 18 screens that you know cost a hundred thousand dollars i've done those sims and i'm not good at them um I think they're helpful for somebody that is a good driver, but I don't, I, I, you could be the most amazing sim driver in the world and not correct a slide in a real car because there's real suspension loading in a car that is not on a sim. There's felt traction with the tires. You actually feel what's going on in your butt. You don't feel that on a sim. There's, eyes you don't have eyes on a sim you're looking at a screen and everything's rotating around the screen in a car you can choose where to look so if you go into a slide you're looking over here that's you don't have that on a sim um the biggest thing you don't have on a sim is fear there's a very real component when you're on a sim you can hit the friggin reset button when you're in a car you don't get a reset button unless you know you have I mean, you do have a reset button. It costs, you know, 50 grand or whatever your car costs. So that factors in a lot because the panic is what causes you to make mistakes. It's, you know, it's the target fixation. When you start to understeer on a sim, you're like, oh, okay, I'm understeering. Well, I know how to fix this. When you understeer in real life, you're looking at what you're actually going to hit and freaking out and you forget to do what you've been trained to do. So it's probably good for helping out lap times and learning tracks. I do not think it makes anybody a, an actual better driver. Um, nor do I think that those skills translate to real life. So that's my answer there. I appreciate the question. It is a good one. Um, and you're always in first place in those races. I'm not. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm never in first. 
All right, props and flops of the week. It is that time of the night. Uh, the props and flops are brought to you by Switch Cars. Switch Cars is the enthusiast dealership where we buy, sell, consign, service, and store only cars that we like ourselves. Check out our handpicked inventory at switchcars.com. Our pick of the week from Switch Cars inventory is... That's uh, one of two. I think I'm going to go with, we have a 1995 Porsche 993. It is polar silver with flamenco red full leather interior. I love it solely for the color combo. And yeah, it has a rebuilt title, but it was due to very minor damage on the front, but the tub got damaged. So they had to, they had to total it out. Um, it's been maintained by the same shop porsche specialty shop planet 911 for the last 20 years it is very well serviced and it's a great price point it's a really solid car in a unique and fantastic color combo for a low low price in today's crazy world of 75 grand and of course if you use discount code switchcast when you talk to daniel or thomas they'll give you a thousand bucks off so the flop of the week, I've got two because it's such an awesome week. There were so many. There were so many. Flop. I could do a flop of the day with yeah, Darwin Awards here. Uh, one was there was a car condo in Natick, Massachusetts for sale posted by Thomas Edward, known as Tedward on the tubes of you. And it was a $1.5 million. It was a beautiful, beautiful condo. And uh, living space, couches, TVs, bar, blah, 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 a lift. But the only cars in it was like a $50,000 old Chevelle muscle car and a Volkswagen Beetle Cabriolet. And I was laughing my butt off because I'm like, man, this guy has his priorities all wrong. He spent a million and a half on a car condo. And the only money I had left over was for a muscle car and his girlfriend's Volkswagen Beetle. So I would have it totally the other way around. I'd have a dingy warehouse and... 1.4 million dollars in cars because that's what car guys do but anyway i thought that was funny the the biggest flop of the week super darwin award i'm sure everybody has seen this on the interwebs the dude in florida who paid seven hundred four thousand dollars for a heritage ford gt at the bear jackson auction super low mileage collector blah 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 and he crashed it because he was quote unquote unfamiliar with how to drive stick shift <laughs> yeah he's an idiot it was also unregistered and his license was suspended and from what i was told it was also uninsured so good dude probably got super drunk at barrett jackson and overpaid for a ford gt didn't actually know what he was buying, but everybody else was buying one, so he thought it was cool. Tried to take it on a test drive. Didn't even bother putting the insurance on it. Had it on temp tags, whatever. Wrecks it. Nice job, dude. Nice job. Uh, prop of the week, manual Toyota Supra. That's it. You all have read about it. You all know about it. I'm just happy that a cool car is made in a manual again. Yeah, that's all. I don't need to say anything more about that. It's a manual Toyota Supra. Anyway, thank you for joining me tonight. Our guest next week is Arnie Toman, my co-driver from 2725 and 2539 and 24 flat and a couple of C to C to C's, the greatest 
modern master of disguise for cannonballing ever to live. Modern and ever to Yeah, whatever. Uh, Arnie is coming out to pick up his 1984 Corvette that I sourced for him, and uh, he's going to be joining me next week. I'm super excited. I know you guys are, too. We've had a lot of requests for him to be on the show because he is way cooler than I am. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, Boxcast, Nuts for Sticks, Switch Cars, Celebrity Machines, and Stephen Holm Woodworking. Actually, yes, I am, will be remiss not to mention, uh, on Nuts for Sticks, we have a new shirt out this week. It's the Stigosaurus, and because dad joke on the back, Stigosaurus Rex. Yes. I'll, I'll give you a minute on that one. You can get that one online. <sighs> Discount code SWITCHCAST. Off Nuts for Sticks will give you on nutsforsticks.com will give you 10% off. Thank you to all of our sponsors. Thank you to our producer and call screener Ethan Huffnagel. Our bumper music has been provided by Emily and Ivory. You can stream their full album on Spotify or SoundCloud. This episode will be available Friday in audio format wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday at 8 p.m. with Arnie Toman, and we'll look forward to answering your automotive questions to help you on the drive of your life.